We're in Revelation chapter 10 tonight, and Revelation 10 is probably a little break in the difficulty of the book. You get a little bit of a breather. And this chapter begins to, I think, summarize and catch us up uh, with a number of the events that have been revealed to us uh, in the past four chapters at this point. And remember where we are now as we enter into chapter 10. Chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Revelation have revealed some devastating judgments uh, levied against a nation. And that's been the descriptions in those two chapters, 8 and 9, both describing that a nation is under the wrath of God, but it's not its total end. It is partial judgments. And the end of chapter 9, the point was the effort was to bring about repentance. The point was to get the nation and really all of mankind to turn away from their evil ways. Unfortunately, that did not happen. The people did not repent. And so because of that, we're now going to read chapters 11, or chapters 10 and chapters, uh, chapter 11. Uh, what we have in chapters 8 and 9, remember, is the unveiling of these seven trumpets. We've read six of them up to this point. And so we still have one more trumpet yet to come. We're still waiting for one more blast. And remember how chapter 9 reminded us that after the first four trumpets, those were bad, and yet woe to the earth because things were only going to be worse with the three that were yet to come. And so we've seen those next two, the fifth and the sixth trumpet, be quite devastating. We've seen the picture of Satan unleashing the Locus imagery of the Roman Empire than in the first century and its power and might being wielded. And now chapter 10 is going to clarify for us even further who is the object of God's wrath. And I find that to be fascinating that Revelation has operated in somewhat of what we would consider a backward nature in that the revelation does not begin with here's who's being judged and let me tell you why. It's the reverse. Let me tell you why and then I'm going to tell you who it is. And so that's what we've been doing is we've been moving through these images of the seven seals and now the seven trumpets and now we're going to begin to be told and here's who God has been talking about all this time. So we're in Revelation 10. Let's look at the... Uh, well, let's just eat. Let's read all 11 and then we'll break it down piece by piece. Revelation 10. We'll read the chapter. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard 
from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must prophesy again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right, so there's our picture for tonight. So chapter 10 begins and we see this mighty angel coming down out of heaven. Now, there are a lot of um, scholars and commentators see that this mighty angel uh, is Christ and, because, and a couple of reasons why. They see Him coming in this cloud, wrapped in a cloud, You see a rainbow over his head, where the only other place we've seen a rainbow in Revelation up to this point is in the throne room scene back in chapter 4 where we saw the rainbow picture around the throne of God. And then notice that his face is like the sun and legs like pillars of fire, which is similar to the imagery of the Son of Man that we read about in chapter 1, around verses 15, 16, and 17. And so because of those images, many are saying, well, what we are seeing now is Christ coming down. I say no because it says it's a mighty angel. And so that's what I think is the best way to go with it. We can't make an equation and say, well, Christ is a mighty angel. That's that's absolutely no good uh, in the slightest. So what we need to do is try to figure out, well, what are these images trying to show concerning what this angel is doing? Why use this language that has been reserved for descriptions about God or about Christ and is described now to this angel? First thing that we're given here is that he is wrapped in the cloud. By now, I'm sure if I were to take a poll, you would be able to shout out to me, what do the clouds represent? When we see clouds, that's always bad. That is always a symbol of judgment. Remember, Revelation began that way. Revelation 1 verse 7, saying, behold, he's coming with the clouds. That doesn't mean good. That means bad. That means judgment is going to come with him. And even Jesus himself used that kind of language when he spoke to Caiaphas And those of the Sanhedrin, when they were asking him if he is the Son of God, and he answered, I am, and you're going to see me coming in the clouds of power. A statement of judgment coming upon the people. A number of other places we could go in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 4.13, same picture of, of God coming in the clouds. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. Lots of images in the Old Testament as well as with Christ talking about Himself, judgment is coming. And so the first thing we need to see in verse 1 of Revelation 10 is that here is this angel coming, and to be wrapped in the cloud means that judgment is coming with Him. That shouldn't be too surprising because we are still waiting the seventh trumpet, and we were told at the end of chapter 9 that people did not repent from the partial judgments. And so something big is coming with this mighty angel. The second image that we see then given to us is just as important. You notice that he's wrapped in a cloud and it says there is a rainbow over his head. In a similar way, the rainbow has had a number of important meanings going all the way back to the days of Noah, reflecting that God keeps His covenant, that God keeps His word, He keeps His promises. That was the important symbol that was used by God when God destroyed the world by flood. He then hung His bow up in the sky 
and told Noah, this is my sign to you of a covenant that I'll never destroy the world by water again. And so that's what we should see here is that this is a covenant kind of picture. And so when we start adding these pictures together, we have that this judgment is coming and that is in keeping with God's Word. That is in keeping with God's covenant and God's promises. This is the unfolding of God's purposes and plan. And again, that makes sense as we've marched through the book of Revelation. That we've seen God unleashing partial judgments. And now it seems to be saying, now God is going to bring about a definitive judgment. This is God's work. This complete judgment that this angel is bringing as he is wrapped in the cloud is God keeping His Word, is God keeping His promises. This would probably be tied back to what God told the the servants of God who had been slain, who were under the altar back in Revelation chapter 6. That there was going to be a little while longer. Their question before God is, uh, how much longer? They're calling out for justice and judgment. And the answer was, a little while longer, to rest a little while, until the rest of God's servants were killed. But in there was a promise that in a little while longer, God's going to deal with it. And I think we're seeing that now coming to fruition, that God now is acting, that God God is going to keep His Word. And as we mentioned in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, you'll see those similar images to verse 1 of the face like the sun and His legs like pillars of fire. And so, since this cannot be Christ, because this is an angel being described, a mighty angel, I think then to show this parallelism between Christ and that imagery and now the angel and the same imagery is just to point out that this is sent by God. This is God's doing. This is, this is God's plan. And so all of these images are being pushed together. God is bringing judgment. This is the full purpose and plan of God. This is not going off the rails and saying, wow, I can't believe they didn't repent. Now what are we going to do around here? Uh, this is God's plan. He knew this is what He was going to do. And so this is God keeping His covenant, God keeping His word as these judgments are now to be unleashed. You'll notice in verse 2 some images that we'll talk about later. I'm going to preserve those for a minute. But we see the angel holding a little scroll standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Just keep that imagery in mind. And we'll talk more about, well, what does it mean? Why a little scroll? Why is he standing like that? We'll see that the answer to that in just a minute. So keep that in your mind. And notice verses 3 and 4, something really interesting is that when the angel comes and he, he takes his stand, he calls out with a loud voice in verse 3, and when he makes that sound like a lion roaring, it says that the seven thunders sounded. And so that's pretty interesting. You have the, the seven thunders are sounding, and we're told here some, something pretty interesting is that some important messages seem to come out of these seven thunders that John says in verse 4 that he was about to write all these things down. And instead of being able to write these things down, we see a voice from heaven in verse 4 saying to seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So apparently these messages were not to be revealed yet. There's probably some kind of description about judgment because this is similar language to what we read in Daniel chapter 12. Remember the imagery of Daniel 12 about all these judgments. Daniel is asking how long and the answer is seal it up until the time of the end. No answer is given. No more clarity is going to be given about that prophecy. 
And the same thing is given here as the angel makes his stand and the seventh thunder sound and John starts writing down the seventh thunder said and a voice from heaven says, no. Nobody's going to know about that. Seal those things up. And so this is the only mystery that's left a mystery in the book of Revelation. This is the only instance where we have the message continuing to be concealed. And we don't know what it was about. Obviously, God did not want us to know what it was about. It was not for humanity to know at that time and not for us to know even now. But certainly fascinating, I think, is here's yet another seven. We can imagine that Revelation would have had, remember, you have seven seals, which then begin seven uh, trumpets, which now probably would have had seven thunders, except we're told, no, we're not going to talk about the thunders. Set those aside. Let's just move on. And so that's what John then does. In verse 5, we now see this angel, and it's described to us again in verse 5, the angel standing on the sea and on the land. But notice what the angel does, because this is very important imagery. That the angel then raises his right hand to heaven, and it says in verse 6, that he swears by him who lives forever and ever and created heaven and all that is in it, and earth that is in it, and all the sea that is in it. So he swears by the Father, swears by God. And what does he swear? He says that there's no longer going to be delay, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced by his servants the prophets. And we're left by that to wonder, well, what did he mean by that? Because that's an awful lot of information about this angel, and yet he really didn't say anything, right? He does some really important stuff. He takes an oath, he takes a stand, he says there's no more going to be delay, and all that God said by the prophets are all going to be fulfilled when the seventh angel sounds. And we go... What? (laughs) What's going to be fulfilled? Great, okay, but what? To answer that, it is important to observe that this is parallel imagery to Daniel chapter 12, and in particular verse 7. Daniel chapter 12 is really important right here, because you're going to notice that the same angel is doing the exact same thing. And notice it with me in Daniel 12 verse 7. Here's Daniel saying, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time, and that when the... that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Now I want you to see the parallels of this. First we have an angel. They're both taking a stand. They're both making an oath. They're both raising their hand. They're both raising their hand toward heaven. They're both taking an oath on the basis of God who lives forever and ever. The, The imagery is exactly the same except for just... Two little small differences and one difference in particular is really important is the timeline. Here in Daniel 12, he says when he makes the oath that it would be a time, times, and half a time. Now we're going to see that phrasing come into play a lot. And I'm going to save the time, times, and half a time to next week in chapter 11 because we're going to read about time, times, and half a time 1,260 days, 42 months, and three and a half years, all referring to the exact same thing. But it pops up a lot in chapter 11. 
So I think we can just set it aside. And what I want you just to observe right here is that back in the days of Daniel, it is told that there is a time marker. It's not immediate. What the angel is telling Daniel is that these things are going to happen not right now, but in a time, times, and half a time. There's going to be some time that's going to go on. We'll talk about that meaning a a little bit more. But what's important to catch is what's going to happen. And here the angel describes what's going to happen. is that it's going to be the shattering of the power of the holy people. That is a really important statement that the angel gives us clarity about. This is the shattering of the power of the holy people. Well, who is he particularly talking about? If you back up into verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12, you'll notice that we're talking about, here the angel tells Daniel, about your people. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about that physical nation. And this is what gets Daniel upset is there is this prophecy that his people, the nation of Israel, that they are going to be shattered. The power of the holy people is going to be shattered. And that's why Daniel is asking, well, when is this going to happen? And this was the angel's response. There's going to be a time, time, and half a time. And you go, okay, great. And that's what you'll, if you keep reading through Daniel chapter 12, you know Daniel says, gives a, wants a little bit more. And the answer is, seal it up until the time of the end. I'm not going to tell you anymore, but this is going to happen later on. Now, contrast that with what we just saw in Revelation chapter 10 because of this parallel imagery. Notice we're told in Revelation chapter 10 that we see the exact same language. Look at verse 5. Here's the angel taking the stand on sea and land, raising the right hand to heaven. Verse 6, swearing by him who lives forever and ever. But what are we told at the end of verse 6? No more delay. Back in Daniel, the answer was time, times, and half a time. Not right now. It's going to come later at the time of the end. Now the angel takes his stand and says, we're not going to wait anymore. Now there will no longer be a delay. It is going to be the fulfillment, watch verse 7, of the mystery of God. End of verse 7, just as He announced to His servants the prophets. Here is verse 7 telling us, go back to the prophets and see what I'm talking about. And I believe Daniel 12 must be the text that is being referred to because we're seeing the exact same image with the angel doing the same thing, taking an oath and taking a stand and making making the swearing by the Father about what's about to happen. And so that which was prophesied by the prophets in the past, here the angel says, now it's going to happen. Now it's going to be fulfilled. The event that Daniel was hearing about was the destruction of the Jewish nation that was going to come about in 70 A.D. That fits what we saw in the last chapter. Remember in the last chapter what we saw. Here is this Abaddon, this Apollyon, who we see as Satan, opening the abyss, smoke is rising up, and what comes out? These horrible, terrifying locusts. And they are pictured as the Roman Empire, a world power coming to judge, just as like we saw in Joel chapter 2. So the question was, well, who is the Roman Empire destroying? Who is it going to attack? Chapter 10 is giving us some clarity about who is the object of God's wrath. Here is the angel taking the stand and saying, that which was prophesied about the physical nation of Israel, no more delay. 
Now it is going to come up, come to pass. That which was time, times, and half a time is now going to be fulfilled. We don't have time to do it tonight, but go back to Daniel chapter 9 and read verses 24 through 27. It's the vision of the 70 weeks. And remember what the prophecy is about. It is the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem that there's going to be the shattering of the holy city and the holy people there as well. Prophecy that is going to be desolated by a desolator, as the chapter verse 27 talks about. There's going to be something that's going to come, this desolator, this power, and it's going to destroy the people of, the, of Daniel, as described, your people, the nation of Israel. So that's what is being looked at here as he now lays out this angel imagery, and now the angel can say, there will be no more delay. I would like for you to consider that it's not only Daniel who said these things were going to happen. We could go to many places in the Old Testament. We go back like to, to the book of Deuteronomy where it was prophesied that the, if the people disobeyed, here's what's going to happen to them and all the blessings and the curses and the curses. It laid out exactly what happened in 70 AD. An amazing prophecy of Moses saying you're going to disobey and here's what's going to happen. But remember Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, same imagery is used there, that here is Jesus, He comes along, and He says the exact same thing. This event is going to happen. There must be the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment of the people of Israel. And Paul said the same thing. The Apostle Paul, over in 1 Thessalonians 2, in verses 14-16, through 16, where he describes that the people of Israel, the Jews, they are filling up their sins to the uttermost. And remember, the context was that they're persecuting the Christians. They're persecuting the people of God. And God turns, and here Paul turns around and says, but don't worry, their sins are being filled up to the uttermost and God's wrath is going to be poured out against them. So Revelation is, is bringing all of that together now and saying all that was prophesied about that, like Moses predicted would happen, like Daniel prophesies with the angel, like Jesus Himself also prophesied, and even Paul alludes to, is now going to be fulfilled. There's not going to be a delay any longer. Let me then just take a moment here and just summarize then what we have seen from chapter 6 to chapter 10 and how this is all fitting together. Chapter 6 showed us the seals being opened. And that was showing us that there is going to be predicted for us these partial judgments culminating with the final judgment against the nation. Remember, as each seal is open, we're reading about fractions at the in those first four seals. But when we get to the end of the seals, what are we told? Sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, stars are falling from the sky, lights out for the nation. So chapter 6 simply predicted, here's how it's going to go. Partial judgments are going to lead to a final judgment on this nation. Chapter 7 then comes along and says, but before any of that can happen, the people of God need to be sealed. Not that they are going to be spared physically from the devastation, but that they are protected spiritually. And chapter 7 shows that. Where are the people of God? They are with Christ, with the Lamb. They are protected by Him. They are shown as victorious. They are given white robes. They've had them washed in the blood of the Lamb. All of that imagery there to show the victorious Christians, though they've died, there they are with Christ. So chapter 6, judgments are going to come. Chapter 7, before that happens, the people of God are sealed. 
Chapters 8 and 9 then are showing the partial judgments occurring. That's what I think often we get confused about how Revelation is laid out. Chapter 6 was warning what was about to happen. Chapters 8 and 9 are showing it happening. Here it goes. Here are the partial judgments that occurred against that Jewish nation, the physical nation of Israel from the times of around 66 to 69 AD. Here are those partial judgments occurring. How did chapter 9 end? The people did not repent. They did not turn, nor did the nations learn from what God was doing there. Did they change their ways? I think it was intended by God to be a major point to the world. If God will judge His his people, this physical nation, then He will certainly judge the world nations. If He will destroy the Jewish nation, He will certainly destroy all nations. And then what have we seen in chapter 10 now? No more delay of the final judgment. No more delay of the full wrath and fury, the full destruction against this nation. The partial judgments have come. They did not repent. They're deserving of the final judgment to be revealed here. And so the shattering of the nation is going to take place. Notice it very carefully in verse 7. He tells us there that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. That is when we are told this is all going to happen. That is really important. Because we're not going to see a lot between here and that event. It's just going to simply say, the seventh angel sounded. And you're supposed to know what that means. And here in chapter 10, you're told what that means. There's no more delay. The nation is supposed to fall. Its judgment is due to come. And its fall will occur when the seventh angel blows that trumpet. And that's what verse 7 leaves for us. And the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as it was spoken of by the prophets, just as we read about in Daniel chapter 12. So I want you to see the connection with this now to, to Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is saying the nation's going to be judged. People of Israel are going to be judged. Your people, Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. And then in verse 7 he tells them, it's going to be the shattering of the power of the holy people, but not yet. Go your way, Daniel. It's not going to happen until the time of the end. A time, times and half a time is going to happen first. Now the angel takes his stand in Revelation and says, remember what was spoken of by the prophets? No more delay. Now it is going to happen. The shattering of the power of the holy people must take place. And it will happen in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. When the angel blows that trumpet, God's will is going to be fulfilled. So that's what where we're left off at the end of verse 7. That's what this is all culminating into. And we have to kind of keep going backward and carry the chapters forward. It would be great to somehow do a one, you know, 24 straight hours of a Revelation study. We can remember all these images. So we've got to keep going back and pulling it all with us and see, notice how it's all balling together for this final judgment against the nation. And now we're being told this is talking about the Jewish nation. And if you still have your reservations about that, that's good and great. Because when we get to chapter 11, it will erase all your reservations. It will become extremely clear. Right now we're connecting the Old Testament. He's going to just outright say it in chapter 11. And so we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week and we'll see the clarity that he's 
getting at to show that this is certainly talking about the physical nation of Israel. Let's look at the final few verses then. Verse 8 is interesting. It says there, Then the voice that I, that I had heard uh, from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. I find verses 8 and 9 humorous. I, I don't know if I should or shouldn't, but I, I find it humorous because you have John told. Now, here's the command to you, John. I want you to go and I want you to take that scroll. And so what does verse 9 say? John just walks up to the angel and says, give me the scroll. <laughs> I have a hard time believing I would do that. I'd be like, oh, please, sir, would you mind giving that to me? And he just walks up and says, give me that thing. Uh, God told me to do that, and so that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what verse 9 says. I went up to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. But notice what the angel says about this scroll. He says, I want you to take it and eat it. It's going to make your stomach bitter, and in your mouth it's going to be as sweet as honey. So this is an important image that's being told to us here. I believe that this little scroll is the same scroll that we saw in chapter 5. This is the same scroll that the seals have been opened. And there's a couple of reasons to look at it that way. First of all, I think it is interesting that it is described here that it is laying open in the hand of, of the angel. You'll see that in verse 2. He had the little scroll and it's open in his hand. This pictures that this scroll which had been rolled up that no one could see or read or anything like that. Earlier we saw in chapter 6, each of the seals have been opened. And now the scroll is laid open. But why is it called a little scroll? Aren't we looking at a different scroll? It's given a different description, right? It's little. Why would he call it a little scroll at this point? I think the answer is pretty straightforward. It's because John's told to eat it. It is an attempt to try to now move the imagery and get us to understand that John now has to do something with it. And so chapter 10 is just trying to get us to visualize the imagery of you have a little scroll. If it's not the same scroll, then we're left with a lot of interpretive problems. For example, then what is the scroll, A? And B, why is it little? And what is it going to talk about? I think it makes far more sense that we are still in the same scroll that was we read about in chapter 5. It's the same information. The seals have been opened, and so now we are looking inside the scroll, and we are being told the things that are about to happen. And so it is a little scroll because John must then take and eat the scroll. And I think it is interesting that this is not the only place we read about this. This, this sounds like some strange imagery of well, why would you go and eat a scroll? Well, Ezekiel was told to do the exact same thing. Over in Ezekiel 2 and verse 9, notice what is told to him. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of the book was in it. And he spread it before me. Notice it's laid open. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you, and, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Ezekiel's told to do the exact same thing. Well, what is the meaning of eating the scroll? Well, obviously not literally. He's talking in an image, in a vision here, to eat the scroll. It is a picture of God's servant having to prophesy his message. 
The servant of God, the prophet, is not going to speak his own message. It is picturing he is eating the very words of God and is now commissioned to go and prophesy that message. And that's what Ezekiel is doing. Ezekiel is being commissioned, you're going to go and prophesy to my people that are in captivity in Babylon. You're not going to say your own words. You're going to say what God tells you to say. And so eat the scroll so that you are prepared to go and prophesy. The same thing is being shown to us here is that John is given the scroll. Why? Because the things that he is going to say is the message of God. He is prophesying God's words, which explains why in both places the scroll is sweet to the taste. Because this is the very words of God. As we read in Psalms and we read in other places about the sweetness of God's word, but but David did a great job describing it as more to be desired. Are they than gold, even much fine gold? Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, Psalm 19, verse 10. God's word is always pictured as sweet. And so Ezekiel, he eats the scroll and it's sweet to his mouth because the word of God has that consistency. And John has the same thing. The word of God is sweet to the taste. But did you notice something different about John's? The angel even tells him in verse 9, That you're going to eat it and it's going to be sweet to the taste. But it's going to be bitter to your stomach. And he says there in verse 10, that's exactly what happens. At the end of verse 10, it says, my stomach was made bitter. That shows that this is a picture of bad news. So this is not going to go well. While the word of God is always sweet to the taste, what is about to be revealed is bitter to understand. that The judgments that are about to be revealed, the events that are about to be told, are devastating pictures and devastating images. And so it's bitter to the taste, or bitter to the stomach, though sweet to the taste. It's the Word of God, but it's a description of how awful things are going to be in the coming judgments. Verse 11, I think, is easily missed, but I think it is critical to the text here. And he's given the scroll, he eats the scroll, a picture of being commissioned, and what is he going to prophesy about by eating the scroll? To peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I want you to see something really important here. Here is John, and he's already being told here from chapter 10, this final judgment, this crushing blow against the physical nation of Israel is about to come. He's already been told, when the seventh angel blows that trumpet, all God's plan about that's going to be fulfilled just like the prophet spoke of. But then he turns to John and says, now eat the scroll. Now you would think that would be a final statement. Say, well, that's the end, right? Oh, no. He turns to John and says, you're going to do more. And you're going to prophesy about nations and peoples and languages. You've got far more to talk about. And I think that's what we're going to see in chapter 12. That's going to pick up because chapter 11 is going to show the seventh trumpet sound. But the book of Revelation's not over. We're being clued in that there's more to see. More is going on. We need to talk about nations and peoples and languages. More is to be unveiled. And so John is not done, though he has seen these amazing images of seals and thunders and trumpets. More to come, more images. I think that for me that's a critical point because most people come to chapter 12 and they hit the restart button. And they say, now we're talking about the same thing all over again. 
But verse 11 says the things that we're about to read about are not the same things that we've already read about. Now we are going to talk about nations and peoples. You've already done one message. You've got another message. Your job is not done. There's more work to be done, John. And so don't think when you hear the seventh trumpet sound that now God's sitting down and the, re- and the end is, is come. There's more to be done. And so that's a leading picture of what the rest is about to give us. I'll do the conclusion in just a minute. Just a little bit of a note of homework. Chapter 11 is very challenging. Please read chapter 11. There is a lot of images. We've got temples being measured. We've got witnesses who are being killed in the streets and resurrecting and going to heaven. We've got the seventh trumpet sounding. There's a lot of things happening in chapter 11. So get a feel for the language and get an understanding of what is being described there. I want to leave you with just two concluding points for you to take home. The first one fits so well with what we are doing in our Sunday morning Bible class and what chapter 10, one of the great emphasis of this chapter is that God keeps His promises. We've said all of this delay. We've had all of this time pass by. We've had time, times, and half a time since the days of Daniel. And even here in the book of Revelation, we've seen seals opened and trumpets sounding, and yet God hasn't completed everything yet. But here chapter 10 is coming along and saying, God, God keeps His covenant. God keeps His promises. This has been pictured all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And think about how many different prophecies took so much time for God to fulfill, and yet God did do it. One of the easiest is Abraham. To picture to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth be blessed, that was way past his lifetime. And generations upon generations, approximately 1,500 years would go by before God kept that promise and fulfilled it. We must always keep that in mind, is that hundreds of years can pass, thousands of years can pass, but God will keep His promise. That gives us hope because we often have difficulty when we read the words like 2 Peter 3 about there's going to be a day of judgment and all the elements are going to burn up and we look around and go, well, it's been thousands of years. Well, that's not the first time it's taken God thousands of years to fulfill a promise. In fact, that's kind of the norm. God takes His time, but God will fulfill His promise even if it be hundreds or even if it be thousands of years. And number two... What a great picture of the scroll. Sweet to the taste. That should be our same desire and attitude toward the Word of God. Is that there's absolutely nothing sweeter, more enjoyable, than to spend time reading God's Word, getting to know God, and fellowshipping with Him through the words that we read revealed to us. What a great statement that every time we read the Word of God in the prophets, it's sweet to the taste as Ezekiel enjoys eating the scroll and John also the same. And I pray that's our same love for the Word of God, that we enjoy it, that we desire it, that we want to spend time in it, that we will develop that if we haven't done so already, that we will learn how sweet it is to get to know God's will because of what it can do in changing our lives and making us ready for eternal life and receiving His blessings. That's chapter 10. We're creeping into the big finale of chapter 11, the thunderous strike of the fall of the nation of Israel. I look forward to studying those things with you, Lord willing, next Sunday night.